Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15, and please stand with me for the reading of God's word. You shall not steal. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Eighth Commandment. We thank you for all of your commands, for they truly are an expression of your holiness, of your righteous and just character. We pray that you'd help us to understand your law and the role that it plays in our lives as your sons and daughters. We thank you for Christ, who is the one who fulfilled all righteousness in our stead, and who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins who has purchased redemption with his very own blood. We Thank you, Lord, for your word, and we ask that you would point our eyes once again to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Christians are called to be holy, and our holiness is a beautiful reflection of God's holiness. That again, Christians are called to be holy, and our holiness is a beautiful reflection of God's holiness. This call uh, to holiness is central to a right understanding of salvation and the Christian life. We are redeemed to bear the likeness of our Savior, to be made like Him, to be conformed to His holy image. Doesn't Paul highlight this aspect of our salvation when he writes in Romans 8.29 that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son? Indeed, Christ not only saves His people from the penalty of their sins, but also to a life of growing holiness. We often think of salvation only in terms of being saved from sin, death, and hell. But it's not just that we are saved from something terrible, namely from sin, death, and hell, but also to something wonderful, that is, to growing likeness to Jesus. That is sanctification, becoming more holy. Even as we are united to Christ and declared righteous, we are in what is called progressive sanctification, growing more and more holy, dying more and more to sin. So Christ only saves us from the penalty of our sins, but also to a life of growing holiness or conformity to His image. Thankfully, we don't go at this alone. We are not left to our own resources. No, we've been given the Holy Spirit to sanctify us unto increasing holiness, to purify us in Christ for the glory of Christ. Look with me at, again at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, a verse that is so helpful to remind us of what Christ has done for us. Titus 2 and verse 11. Uh, again, this is a, a, a text which one would think would go straight to the doctrine of justification as it concerns our redemption in Christ, but actually speaks of our sanctification. Uh, Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, that is all types of people, both Jews and Greeks, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, listen, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why were we redeemed? By Jesus Christ, that we would be saved from all lawlessness and that we would be purified unto a life of good works. Remember uh, this morning from Ephesians chapter 2 that we were created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. We are new creatures in Christ in order that we would produce fruit, that we would do good works. He is the vine, we are the branches. What grows on the branches but the fruit of good works. Those who are in Christ will produce fruit. Some in small measure, some in, in, in greater measure, but we will all produce fruit. And, and one of the obvious fruits, one of the obvious good, good works of someone who is in Christ is worship. Someone who's in Christ desires to worship, longs to worship God. Uh, now, we never do that with perfect fervency. Uh, we never do that with hearts that are perfectly inflamed towards God. Uh, one day we will have that perfect heart of worship in heaven. But there is something to uh, a heart that is united to Christ is a changed heart. It's a, it's a heart that's a new creation in Christ. And so, so we are worship. We have a heart to worship God. That is, that's the, the, the sort of foundational, base, basic good work that every Christian wants to do. How can someone say, yes, I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm united to Him. I'm born again. I have new life in Him, but I don't desire to worship Him. Now, that would be ridiculous. It's a nonsense. But it's not just worship. It's all kinds of good works that we desire to do that we never do perfectly and we rarely do well. But we have a heart that desires to do good works, to love God and love our neighbor in various ways. Thankfully, in all of this, we are not left to our own resources. God has given us His Holy Spirit. He's given us His means of grace. He's given us the church. So any conception of the Christian life that does not have holiness at its center is an unbiblical one. Any conception of the Christian life that does not have holiness the holiness of God and the call to holiness in the life of the believer is an unbiblical one. God is holy, right? God is holy. He is holy, 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 the angels say. And God's people are called to be holy. And without holiness, no one shall see the Lord, Hebrews twelve fourteen. This is why the Apostle Peter states, quote, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's also why the Apostle Paul exhorts the Ephesians church to, quote, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, to be imitators of God. As beloved children, this humble, childlike imitation begins with an imitation of God's holiness, or what some refer to as godliness. Holiness 
and godliness are really the same thing. Because if you are pursuing holiness, you are pursuing God-likeness or godliness. This doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form that we take on uh, the attributes that are only true of God, His, His omniscience, His omnipresence, His omnipotence. Uh, these are attributes that, that are only attributed to God as God. But made in God's image, He has given us what our theologians call those communicable attributes, uh, namely the attributes of love and, and justice and uh, jealousy and, and various attributes that are true of God that, that are also uh, true of us and in us because we are made in His image, that we are, as those who have been united to Christ, we are to reflect that holiness um, as His children. You know, it should be true that the children that grow up in a home where there are certain uh, qualities and characteristics and expectations, those children, when they, when they leave the home, there should be some sense that, hey, you must have grown up in this home or in a home like this. Now, this isn't always true in a fallen world, right? Sometimes our children will grow up in a home where it's full of nurture and, 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 and Christian love and where truth is taught and, and where they are raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and yet when they leave the home, they throw all of that off and they want to embrace the wicked lies of the world. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a disaster. It's a, it's, it's, it's a tragedy in many ways. It's, it's sad. But, and we pray for our covenant children who, who do that. But, but generally speaking, uh, those who grow up in Christian homes have something of that uh, on them. And it's true if we are uh, in the presence of God... Uh, in corporate worship, in the life of the church, uh, pursuing God in our homes personally, then there's going to be a sense that we, we are godly. We are, we are reflecting holiness. Uh, we're not embracing the ways and the attitudes and the, uh, the lies of the world, but we're living uh, in God's truth. And, uh, and when we don't, what do we do? We repent. Uh, we confess our sins to God, who is a loving Father. Uh, I think uh, as fathers, we would hope that if our children sinned against us and they came to us with tears and said, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me, that we'd say, well, of course I do. I love you. You're my child. And of course, we see God with his kindness and patience towards us uh, in these ways as well. But sadly, these biblical themes and these confessional themes uh, were of God's holiness and man's holiness were more prevalent in the church over past centuries than they are today. Uh, one example is in uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson's book entitled The Godly Man's Picture, written or drawn with a scripture pencil. Don't you love that title? The Godly Man's Picture, drawn with a scripture pencil. And it is convicting. Uh, I'm about halfway through it now. Uh, I have learned from various friends that they read it once a year uh, because they have seen how important it is for their own soul uh, that they read this particular work, which is filled, it's just filled with Scripture. And the opening section of this work, Thomas Watson answers the question, what is a godly man? What is a godly man? In typical Puritan fashion, his answer is lengthy 
And there are many points and subpoints and sub subpoints and sub sub subpoints. And here is one of these points. A godly man bears God's name and image. Godliness is godlikeness. It is one thing to profess God and another thing to resemble him. A godly man is like God in holiness. Holiness is the most brilliant pearl in the king of heaven's crown. God's power makes him mighty. His mercy makes him lovely, but his holiness makes him glorious. The holiness of God is the intrinsic beauty of his nature and his abhorrence of sin. A godly man bears some kind of analogy with God in this. Holiness is the badge and livery of Christ's people or uniform of God's people. The holiness of the saints consists in their conformity to God's will, which is the rule and pattern of all holiness, end quote. There's so much I could comment on here in this description of what it means to be godly by Thomas Watson. But what I, what I want to focus on is that last sentence. The holiness of the saints consists in their conformity to God's will, which is the rule and pattern of all holiness. Did you get that? The holiness of Christians consists in their conformity to God's will. And what is God's will? It is His Word, His revealed Word, His law, His commands. And what is God's law but a clear expression of His divine holiness, a holiness that flows from His perfect nature? We do not love God if we do not love His Word. Could you imagine saying something like this? I love Toby. I just don't love anything that he says. I love Pastor John, but I can't stand anything that comes out of his mouth. There's a dissonance there. How could you love someone and yet not love their word? Well, the same goes for God, the primary way that we evidence by faith a true love and passion for God is to possess a true love and passion for His Word. Isn't this why we see the author of Psalm 119 expressing himself the way he does? You know, some, and, and let me say this on, as a side note, some called Calvin in the days of the Protestant Reformation a bibliolater because he loved God's Word and quoted God's Word so much he was blamed by some in the Roman Catholic Church as being a worshiper of the Bible and not of God. Now, that's just ridiculous. Calvin didn't worship the Bible. He worshiped the God who revealed his word in the Bible. But this was what he was blamed for. But listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Quote, I find my delight in your commandments which I love. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 160. Quote, Consider how I love your precepts. 
Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The psalmist loves the law of God because it comes from God and perfectly reflects the holiness of God. This is why it is his meditation day and night. Now, dear ones, please hear this. We are not studying the Ten Commandments because we believe that a well-intentioned effort to obey the Ten Commandments will in any way, shape, or form earn us a place in heaven. That's not why we're studying the Ten Commandments. If we can just obey these Ten Commandments, God will usher us into heaven. So let's really study them and meditate upon them because if we can just obey them according to God's requirements, we'll go to heaven. It's not why we're studying them. No. Nor do we study them simply because it's required of us, just something that Christians should do. We're studying the Ten Commandments. It's just what Christians have done forever, so we're doing it. No, we study the Ten Commandments because we love our holy and merciful God. And as his beloved children, we, by grace through faith, want to imitate him. We want to be like him. We want to be conformed to our holy King Jesus, to be holy as God is holy. We don't study the Ten Commandments because we want to earn a way to heaven We study the Ten Commandments because Christ gave himself for us and united to him. He has given us heaven. And now his law is no longer that which condemns us, but that which guides us to know how to please him. What a gift. Oh, how I love your law because, oh, how I love you, oh God. I don't love your law because it's a way for me to gain salvation. I love your law because you have saved me in Christ, and this is how I may please you with a thankful heart. The Heidelberg Catechism is split up into three divisions, guilt, grace, and gratitude. First of all, we learn about our guilt, our sin before a holy God. And then we are taught about how God has saved us by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then we have the gratitude section, the thankfulness section, which deals with what? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. This is how we demonstrate to God a grateful heart that we truly are thankful for what He has done for us by our desire to obey His commands, which we know we will never do perfectly in this life. But we desire to. We want to please the Lord because we are thankful. And we are compelled to because we love Him. And all of this is of grace. It's all of grace. We are called by His enabling grace to be holy according to God's Word. And God's Word is the standard, not our own. That's why we go to God's law. That's why we go to His Word. That's why we go to His commands to know how to please our Heavenly Father, to know how to serve our King who has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We go to His Word because that is the standard. We don't come up on our own, come up with this on our own. In our day of expressive individualism, many professing believers are confused and think that a relationship with God is established on our own terms and dictated by our own desires. I'm going to serve God according to the way that I feel something and think that God's okay with that. 
Oh, sure, just serve me however you want to and however you feel. Because that's the way we parent our children, right? Of course we don't. We, we don't do Christianity on our own terms. and It's not dictated by our desires, how we feel. Now, that's the furthest thing from the truth. Our relationship with God is established on His terms as set forth in His holy word, as set forth in His law and in His gospel. And what a comfort that is, that we have an external authority, that it's not based upon our feelings, which are ever-changing, It's not based upon how I'm going to express myself individually or how some other human is going to do that, but it's outside. The authority is outside of us. It's in in God Himself and in His Word, which He has given to us. And so these commands, these laws given in the Ten Commandments, they, they, they restrain sin in the world. They expose sin and show us our need for a Savior and then in Christ, of course, they are a guide for the Christian life. And so the law plays a very important role in our lives as Christian believers. And hopefully this makes it a little clearer why it is so important that we study the Ten Commandments. And why Christians over the centuries have made it a point within catechisms and confessions and through sermons to spend time unpacking the truth found in the Ten Commandments. We have so far looked at, you shall have no other gods before me, commandment one. Uh, Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not worship them or serve them. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. And This evening we come to the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. Now, dear ones, perhaps like some of the other commandments, one might believe that they are doing a pretty good job of obeying this particular command. After all, they might say, and there may be some in this room, I I would maybe guess that there are some in this room, who cannot remember a time when they actually, as they say in Britain, pinched something from someone's house who actually stole something from a store or from someone's home or from the workplace, that they honestly can't remember ever stealing something like that. Maybe there are some of you in this room who can't remember that. Um, Or perhaps you did do that, but it was like 35 or 40 years ago, and you have never really sense the need to confess that you've broken the Eighth Commandment since then. If you've thought this, then you're not alone. In his book on the Ten Commandments, Kevin DeYoung notes a Barna survey where 86% of adults polled claimed that they had completely satisfied God's requirement of not stealing. But as with The other commandments, the Eighth Commandment, is much more expansive in its scope and requirements and application than at first glance. Maybe you look at that command and say, thou shalt not steal. I I can't remember the last time I stole anything. 
This is great. I, I've done one of them. Well, I'm here to tell you, no, you have not. Not even close, nor have I. Everyone in this room is a million miles from keeping the Eighth Commandment. And unpacking this is important to our own understanding of, of the law and, and, and of God's grace and of what Christ has done for us. Once again, our confessional standards come in handy here, especially the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 141 and 142. And, and I would invite you to take your hymnal and turn to the back of the hymnal, and you can follow along. These are um, longish paragraphs, and so it might help you to, um, to read along as I'm reading. Question 141 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, which again, if you're not f- familiar with uh, uh, catechisms uh, and you think, you know, I, I only believe in the Bible, I don't like catechisms. Well, the catechisms are basically a summary of biblical teaching. There are like a gazillion proof texts uh, in these catechisms and confessions. It's, it's essentially doing what pastor's doing, uh, distilling God's truth and preaching it and teaching it. That's what the catechisms do in question and answer format. Question 141, what are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? Answer, the duties required in the Eighth Commandment are... Truth, up oh, there we go, we've all broken the Eighth Commandment. How many of us have been men and women, boys and girls of truth? Pure, unstained truth. The duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due, restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others, moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenation of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligence in it, frugality, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship or other like engagements, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. That's essentially loving our neighbor as ourselves. Question 142, what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment besides the neglect of the duties required are theft, robbery, man-stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man, or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depopulations, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, or of enriching ourselves, covetousness, inordinate prizing and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies and getting, keeping and using them, envying at the prosperity of others, as likewise idleness, prodigality, wasteful gaming. Uh, I don't think there were video games back then, but uh, it's a different kind of gaming. 
and all other ways whereby we do unduly prejudice our own outward estate and defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God hath given us. Now, before we give consideration to some of these requirements and transgressions of the Eighth Commandment, I think it would be helpful to consider two important truths that we should consider when we think about the Eighth Commandment. The first one is this. God owns everything. God owns everything. He is the maker of the heavens and the earth, and He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Therefore, because He is God, because He's the sovereign King, He owns everything. David writes in Psalm 24:1, quote, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, end quote. Psalm 89.11 states the same thing, quote, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them, end quote. In Job 41, verse 11, God asks this question, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God can say that. You know why? Because he is God. Because he is God. So when we think of the Eighth Commandment, we should keep this truth in mind. God owns everything. Secondly, we want to keep in mind that we are stewards of the portion that God has given to us. We are stewards of the portion that God has given to us. There, there's an ultimate sense in which we are not the ultimate owners of our possessions, but the stewards and managers of them. We understand that in the world in which we live, and there are laws, and uh, there need to be laws because of sin, and we need to put locks on our doors because of sin, and, and all of these things. Yes, and so we, we have this uh, understanding of ownership in this world, but ultimately we recognize that God really owns everything, and He's given us a portion, and we are stewards of that. How will we steward whatever wealth, whether small or great or medium, that God gives to us? We are the managers. Indeed, as God has sovereignly given to each of us a portion in life, we should always be asking ourselves, quote, am I content with my portion? And am I being faithful to steward the portion that I have been given? I'm often convicted by the hearts of the writer of Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 9 when he prays this prayer, remove far from me falsehood and lying, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is the heart of a man who recognizes the danger that money and possessions can bring to the human heart. Now, of course, the Lord may give some of his children a generous portion, but it's always important to remember that the love of money is what? The root of all evil. Again, it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And to whom much is given, much is expected and required, and all for the glory of God. It's, uh, we recognize that there are those in the Bible like Joseph and, and Abraham and Joseph of Arimathea who put Christ in his tomb, and, and others who 
Uh, and Solomon, who had great wealth. And yet this wealth must be stewarded for the glory of God because we know this kind of wealth often ruins people. It's really something, isn't it? It's something how those who win the lottery, well, their lives will be destroyed afterwards. Why is that? Because of the love of money, because of what can often come with that, we need to recognize the dangers. But here we see that God owns everything, and we are merely stewards of the portion that God has given to us, and one day we will answer to Him for how we stewarded the gifts and portion that God has given to us. These two points remind us that when it comes to the Eighth Commandment and our relation to the possessions of others, there is quite a bit to consider, both positively and negatively. This commandment is about much more than robbing a convenience store or fudging on your taxes. The eminent 17th century Dutch theologian, Wilhelmus Abrakel, he leads off his application of the Eighth Commandment by referencing ecclesiastical robbery. That's what he calls it. Ecclesiastical robbery. Do we ever think about the Eighth Commandment as it concerns robbing God? It's an important point, isn't it? Because the Bible actually talks about this. God's words makes it clear that we can rob God. How? When we do not give Him what is rightly His and take it for ourselves. What's an example? Well, the first fruits of our income. We see this principle all throughout Scripture, the tithe. In some places, the tithe is 10%. In other places, the tithe is 20%. We have this language of first fruits. We're not going to put a hard and fast rule. I know there are different debates about what exactly we are to give. I typically have taught that 10% is a good starting place. If it was 10%, typically in the Old Testament, then that's a good starting place, a good principle for us. But uh, there are some who are able to give more than that, and we praise the Lord for that. Some aren't able to give quite as much for various reasons, but 10% is a good starting place. But it's important to remember that when God gives to us, there's this principle that we give back to Him for His glory and for the health and extension of His church around the world. But if we look at Malachi chapter 3 and verses 6 through 12, we see these principles being set forth. Quote, Malachi uh, 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I can give testimony without any hesitation that in the length of my Christian life, in giving to the Lord the tithe, the first fruits, and beyond, 
I have never been in want. And I can tell you that in over 20 years of ministry, I have never heard one person come to me and say, Pastor, this whole tithing thing, it's for the birds. I've been tithing and I haven't been able to eat. I've been tithing and I haven't been able to take care of my family. I've never heard these words. And I'm not saying there's some sort of formulaic thing. And if any pastor says that there is, then then you should be wary of that. What I'm expressing to you is that when we give back to the Lord of all that He has given to us, and and by the way, when we think of the the, the percentages that we're talking about here, 10%, let let me for a moment do a little little, uh, hypothetical situation with you. Let's say you knew nothing about tithing or or anything the Bible taught about how much to give back to God. And Almighty God came to you and said, okay, I'm going to have you give back to me. I, I've given you everything you have, uh, your, 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 your heartbeat, your breath, your job, your gifts. I've given all of this to you. I gave you my son to save you from your sins. Now, what percentage of your income do you think you should be giving back to me for the spread of the gospel around the world? How many of us would have the audacity to say, 10%? One dollar out of every 10. I, I think probably none of us in this room would come up with such a low figure. What is extraordinary is how we have come up with so many justifications to say, I can't get there and I will probably never get there because of this, this, and this. Now, once again, everyone in this room, everyone who walked into this room tonight, all of us, we are sinners saved by grace. But the point that's being made here is that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us and he loves us so much as a father that he gives us these commands and he gives us Uh, these clear principles from the Bible because he loves us and he knows how easily our hearts can be captured and make an idol of money. And so what does he do because he loves us? He says, I want you to give back of the first fruits. The first fruits, the best fruits. The first page in the budget is give to the Lord because he knows that when we do that, then we are not going to make an idol of it. It's when we hold it all back for ourselves that we find ourselves robbing God and loving money. The second way we rob God is of His glory. We rob God of His glory. There's a story, I can't remember it in detail, but of William Carey uh, being in India and seeing someone bowing down to an idol and he's overwhelmed with grief because God is not getting the glory this idol is getting, this false idol is getting the glory that God deserves, that is due His name. But we often rob God God of His glory and we break the Eighth Commandment. Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. Why does God save us by sovereign grace? 
1 Corinthians 1.29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we glory and boast in ourselves, we rob God of the glory that he alone deserves. If we glory and boast in our possessions, we rob God of what only he is worried, or excuse me, what he is worthy of. Let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. And here's the thing. We are happiest when we are most boasting in the Lord. We are most joyful and satisfied and content in life when we are giving God the glory that is due his name. It is when we actually take glory for ourselves and boast ourselves that we are actually miserable. It's when we have our eyes on ourselves that we find ourselves most miserable. But what are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? We read that earlier, and it's a fairly comprehensive paragraph, isn't it? We, of course, don't have time to unpack this entire section, and I suppose in maybe a couple of years we'll get to this question and answer in our Sunday school class, which is going very slow. I know that. I know that. You don't have to send me an email and tell me that. I know that. We are, no one has sent me an email, by the way. Um, we're going slowly because it's so rich. And when you sit down at Hall's Chop House, you don't scarf down your food. You enjoy every sumptuous bite. And uh, God's word is so rich. The catechism is filled with such rich doctrine. We want to savor it and learn it and, and grow uh, to know it, to appreciate it. But this paragraph is, is uh, comprehensive. But I think commenting on a few of the points will give us a sense of the whole. Well, first of all, to break this commandment is to do so through theft and robbery of goods or possessions, simply taking what is not ours. Uh, boys and girls uh, who are here uh, this evening, uh, we're so glad you're in the worship service. And we need to remember that when we take something that's not ours, that is breaking the Eighth Commandment. It's very simple. How about man-stealing? Well, this is a word against the wicked practice of chattel slavery, the ownership of another human being. Breaking the Eighth Commandment is also receiving anything that is stolen. If someone gives something to you or tries to sell you something that is attained illegally, it was stolen, then that's breaking the Eighth Commandment to, to buy that or to receive it. Fraudulent dealings. This includes being deceitful in a business deal or a contract. It includes cheating on our taxes and these kinds of things. The paragraph also speaks of false weights and measures. We see this uh, written in different parts of the Bible. Proverbs 20, verse 10, for instance, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It's an abomination to have unequal weights and measures in order to jit people. One commentator explains it this way, quote, Merchants are not permitted to defraud their customers with standards that allow them to sell less of a product than their buyers think they are getting. And they may not use uh, um, mislabeled units to buy more of a product than a seller thinks he is selling. The same principles apply to the consumer as well. We are not to cheat merchants out of the fruit of their labor by fraud, theft, or other immoral means, end quote. How about unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from a neighbor what belongs to him? 
would include a, an employer not paying uh, their workers a fair wage. Um, when we think about what's going on in other parts of the world, perhaps even uh, in our own nation where uh, people are being subjective to, uh, to, to wages that don't correspond to what they're doing, um, this, is, this is stealing. Or a worker who does not give his employer a fair day's work. That is stealing, which brings up the next point, which they bring up. Idleness, prodigality, and wasteful gaming. Dear ones, laziness in our vocations is a sin against the Eighth Commandment. So is spending money recklessly and wasting time foolishly. All of this relates to the vocation that we are meant to faithfully live out to the glory of God, to make income, to be a good steward, to be productive, to be giving and generous to God and to neighbor and to cultivate a godly life and not a wasteful one. What does this say about our culture's preoccupation and even addiction to social media and video games and Hollywood entertainment and sports? How much time do we waste on these things? I'm not saying that these things are immoral necessarily in and of themselves, but, but the, the way we give ourselves so wholeheartedly to them and spend so much time. I remember back when I was growing up, there'd be a, you know, a big game on Saturday night. That would be the thing that you would do. Well, now it's 24-7 ESPN. Or you might choose to play you know, a video game. Um, have fun playing a video game for a few minutes on a weekend, but, but now it's, it's video game addiction. Um, in some parts of the world, they're outlawing video games at certain parts of the day because it's causing a mental health crisis. How much time do we waste on these things? Robbing God of His glory, robbing our families of our time with them and service to them, robbing church members of blessings they are meant to receive through our spiritual gifts, and on and on we can go. This is the breaking of the Eighth Commandment. Proverbs 10, 4, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 24, 26, 14, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Wilhelm S. Brockle again comments that, quote, God hates laziness. It engenders fornication and theft. You know why we have a porn problem in America, in the world? It's because of laziness. Laziness breeds and cultivates this kind of wicked behavior. How about moving or removing landmarks, it states here? Uh, it was interesting when we purchased five acres of land in my previous congregation in Douglasville, Georgia, what we had come to find out is the neighbor had actually built onto that land. And so when we began to build, we discovered that they were about 20 feet into the land that we had just purchased. And so this, this couple came over to my office and said, Basically this, if you love Jesus, you will allow us to keep this land, to love your neighbor as yourself. This seriously said this. And I said, well, if you would love your neighbor, you would not have built on land that was not your own. The problem is not with us. The problem is with you and, and your, 
this needs to be remedies. And so, of course, we walked through that process. But this is robbery. If you are encroaching on someone's land that's not your own. So breaking the Eighth Commandment has extensive application, but what about the virtues encouraged by the Eighth Commandment? I'm just going to mention a few of these that Abraco mentions. What kind of, what's the positive side? Love, righteousness, and justice. Love, righteousness, and justice. Number two, be diligent. 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 and 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. There were those in Thessalonica, for various reasons, were being idle. They were being busybodies, gossips, sitting around, talking about things and people, rather than working and earning their own living. And they are commanded by Paul in the Lord Jesus Christ to work. Thirdly, do all things in moderation, eating, drinking, and clothing. Fourthly, be generous, and those two things are connected, that we would be generous. Fifthly, that we cultivate contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If we are discontent, if we are covetous, which is one of the sins forbidden related to the Eighth Commandment, the Ten Commandments very much related to the Eighth Commandment, then we will be discontent if we are covetous. We need to cultivate contentment. And then finally, follow the golden rule, Matthew 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So there's so much more to this. Um, This could be a 10-part sermon series just on the Eighth Commandment. So what we've seen is that we have transgressed this law and we have failed to conform to it as we ought. If we are honest... We must confess that a day doesn't go by, a second doesn't go by, where we do not obey this command as we ought. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We do not give God the obedience and the glory that he deserves, that he is worthy of. We do not fulfill the requirements of the Eighth Commandment or any of the others. As with all the other commandments, we break the Eighth Commandment. Our sins of discontentment, selfishness, indolence, which is laziness, pride, and unrighteous, unloving dealings, putting ourselves before others, are exposed here as in a mirror. When we hold up the mirror of the Eighth Commandment, we see back this selfishness, this pride, this worldliness, uh, this lack of generosity. We see all of these sins, the discontentment. The false dealings, perhaps. And on our own, we are guilty and condemned before the holy God that we were considering at the outset of this message. We are exposed before Him. All justifications and excuses are gone. We stand before God in and of ourselves, guilty before His holiness and his righteous throne. But this is where the gospel becomes so sweet. 
where it becomes such good news. God sent his only son into the world to save sinners. That is, to save those who do not fulfill the requirements of God's holy laws. Those who are united to Adam in the fall of mankind and who are thus unholy rebels and enemies of God. But here's the thing. Jesus was sent to earth to fulfill all righteousness. And he never once transgressed the eighth commandment. He never once broke the eighth commandment. And he always perfectly conformed to the eighth commandment. His entire, in his entire life, he never committed fraud against his neighbor. He never coveted his neighbor's possessions nor stole them. His obedience was not only outward, but it was from the heart perfectly. He was never lazy. He always worked for the glory of his father. He was always generous and righteous in his dealings and relationships. He always put others before himself. And then as a righteous law keeper, as a sinless substitute, as a spotless lamb, he went to the cross. And as he went to the cross, he laid down willingly and spikes were driven through his wrists and his feet and he was mocked and he was scorned and your sins and my sins were laid upon him. And he became sin for us. He did not become a sinner, but he became sin for us. Your sin and my sin was laid upon him. And he bore the weight of the sins of all the elect. And God, holy God and righteous judge, poured out his wrath and indignation upon his only son for our sins. And so Christ on the cross was under the dominion of death. As we learned this morning from Romans 6. And he bore the penalty of our sins as a righteous lamb and substitute. He never did anything wrong. He always obeyed the Eighth Commandment. He always obeyed every commandment. And thus became that perfect mediator, that sinless substitute for our sins. The wages of sin is death. And he paid those wages. And he went into the tomb for three days. And on the third day, he rose again, conquering sin, hell, Satan, and death. And united to him, we have died to the dominion of sin and death and are raised to the newness of life by grace, by his spirit, through the gift of faith in his son. What a savior. And so this law that the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night outside of Christ. In our natural selves, that law only condemns us. It shows us the extent and the comprehensiveness of our own sins 
the stain of sin on our hearts and our lives, our, our, our darkened mind, our, our corrupt affections, our wicked hearts, our selfishness, our pride, and all of these ways. And God gives us His law, and He gave Israel the law on Mount Sinai to show Israel, to show us our great and many sins. But thanks be to God. He sent His Savior to save us from the penalty and power of those sins. Send us a Savior. And so, united to Christ, pardoned from all of our sins, robed in His very righteousness, we stand before God, forgiven of all of our sins, robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is given to us, and we stand before God's judgment throne declared righteous, declared justified. Now, in Christ, justified, saved by grace, how then shall we live? Here's the law. Not as a means by which you make yourself acceptable to God, but a means by which you please God and show your love for Him. This is love for God, 1 John says, that you obey His commands, and His commands are not what? Burdensome. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. And the only way we can really say that is if we truly understand and by God's grace Embrace and receive the fullness of the salvation given to us in Jesus Christ, who has done it all. There's nothing else to do. Christ has done it all to save us. And in Him now, we have the privilege of obeying the command, Thou shalt not steal. And when we disobey that command and fail to conform to that command, we confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the goal and the aim is that more and more in our lives, as we grow in Christ, we die to the sin of robbery and theft and not loving our nature, being selfish. And we live more and more to Christ and we grow in generosity and love for God and love for our neighbor so that more and more we are obeying these commands. Again, not to make us right with God, but because we have been made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. And along with the psalmist, we do pray, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. We pray, Lord, that as we consider the Eighth Commandment and and the comprehensiveness of it, we know, Lord, that we are guilty of breaking it. And we have failed to conform to it, but Christ never broke it, and He always conformed to it. And we are in Him, and thus we are saved. And now in Him, Lord, help us to live in the newness of resurrection life and growing grateful obedience to Your commands, not least,